This is The Culture Code with Kevin Cruz, founder and CEO of LeadX, the platform that helps you scale and sustain a high-performance culture. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Welcome. I'm looking like a little different background. I'm going to be a little bit off my host game because I am in Nashville, Tennessee right now in, in a hotel room. So I'm working off the little MacBook screen, not my beautiful three giant monitors that I usually have in the home office. But uh, welcome to uh, this community of practice session. Uh, we're going to give everyone a minute to log in and to warm up. Hey, all you veterans, show the new joiners how we like to do it. If you can turn your camera on, that would be great because it just gives us so much more energy. And we do encourage participation throughout. And if you're familiar with Zoom, go ahead and rename yourself. You know, certainly leave your name there, but add the company you're with, the organization that you're with, just so we know where you're from and the context. And uh, we've got a starter question just to prime the interactivity, to prime our fingers on the keyboard. How you feeling right now? We've got this mood meter, which I'll come back to in a second, but look at all those little boxes from high to low energy to high to low pleasantness. How are you feeling right now? And, um, you know, I want to say welcome. It's so great to see so many people returning, so many friends and some first timers as well. Diane from Maine Health, good to see you. Dr. Mike, nice to see you again. I love our interaction, including LinkedIn. Joe, always good to see you. Let's see, Jory Cox is here. Mark Osborne. Mark and I have known each other for like 25 years, maybe, Mark. This is really good, really good. Alyssa, Christine, Douglas. Dwayne is saying he is grateful. Dwayne, I'm going to come back to you on that. And uh, Karen's in Phoenix, Arizona. Karen, I just booked a killer vacay in Sedona I'm looking forward to later this year. And um, everyone, I don't have our... Dwayne, you're going to be disappointed. I don't have my Spotify soundtrack going. I looked up a uh, soundtrack and the title was Analytics. And of course, we always try to map the music to our guests. So it was like, oh, I got one Analytics, nice little ambient, but working off one MacBook and I just couldn't pull it off. So we're doing that here. Hey, I see we've got 81 people joined. Yes, Friday the 13th in October. Ooh, a little spooky out there. Yeah. Uh, stay away from ladders and things like that. <laughs> Laura's got a thank God it's Friday. I think, you know, that is one of those boxes on the mood meter, right, Laura? TGIF, that's got to be in there somewhere. Inspired. Laura from Sonora Quest is there. Sarah Woodbury from Michigan. Oh, go blue. Just crushed my Rutgers football team uh, <laughs> not too long ago. So, hey, if you're just joining us, we welcome, welcome. We'd love to encourage you to keep your camera on. Modify your name in Zoom if you know how to do that to put the organization you're with. We love to see the variety of companies, big and small. And answer this mood meter question, which where this came from, you know, we like to do icebreakers, like do something to get people involved as we're letting everyone in the room. And many of us have seen that sort of wheel of emotions from a lot of EQ things, which is good. I stumbled on this last week, the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence which is very active in K through 12, uses this mood meter. So their model for emotional intelligence for EQ is around energy. And is it a positive energy or negative energy? And so they're using this for students and teachers and administrators to sort of start that conversation to give a language. And I just thought it'd be an interesting 
alternate model. Maybe you want to use the mood meter to kick off one of your future meetings as well. So let's uh, get going. For those of you who don't know, I'm Kevin Cruz. I'm the founder of LeadX. Our mission, it's pretty crazy. We want to spark the next 100 million leaders around the world. We think certainly learning is core to that mission, but we also know about the knowing doing gap. So we love to drive conversations around behavior change. Knowledge transfer is one piece of it. How do we actually sustain that behavior change and measure results, measure impact, which we're going to dive into today. This is an invitation-only community of practice. There's no coaches, consultants, independent contractors or vendors other than LeadX, and we keep the sales pitch out of the room. If you fall into one of those categories and you are here, look, if you're in between roles right now, we encourage you to come because we want to help you find your next great opportunity. If someone shared a link with you, let's talk later. It might not be the best forum for you. And... Um, our goal is to make this meeting just a tremendous meeting on your calendar. So you try us one time, keep coming back. And McDonald, nice to see you again. Brent from Chick-fil-A, nice to see you. And I want to introduce my co-host, Director of Sales Training Development at Hologic, Dwayne Best. The Dwayne Best. Dwayne, how you doing? I'm doing well, my friend. A little tired from the, the week, but I'm feeling good. Every time a month goes by and I see you at the COP, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's been a month and Dwayne and I haven't connected. So any highlights, anything big going on in your world? Yeah, I literally just got back late last night, a little past midnight. We just finished our national sales meeting. Our year ends in October. Well, it starts October 1. So kick that off and uh, definitely uh, a great time. Definitely a great time. Good, good. Thanks for uh, carving out the time on this Friday when you just, you know, had that travel schedule and everything. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's it's kind of funny you said the whole thing. I I was looking back, I was flying back last night. I'm like, man, I am tired, but I was thinking about everything, and I but I am truly grateful, you know, because everything, all the people that uh, went in to support my function to put this thing on, like we couldn't have done it without everyone, and it was just lights out, brilliant. And once again, just having the support and the love to actually to kick things off, it was just just feeling very exhausted, but truly grateful. That's great. Oh, I hey, Josh. So the reason why I'm in Nashville is the Life Science Trainers and Educators Network, L10. Many of you in the room know it. So they're doing their their smaller second event of the year. It's the first time I joined it. And um, it exceeded my expectations. A lot of talk about analytics, a lot of talk about AI. And uh, Dwayne, you had other things that couldn't make it. But um, next year, you should you and I should come out and do this thing together. It's good. It's definitely good. Uh, you know, you can always sign me up for anything, my friend. <laughs> Hey, Evan's driving slides for us today. Evan, why don't we show the agenda just so I make sure, again, the veterans know the format before our new friends. The way we work this out is in just a couple of minutes, we're going to introduce our guest author, and he's the author of People Analytics for Dummies. And if you're on this call, you are getting a free copy of this book. So, hey, if you've already gone to Amazon and searched up People Analytics for Dummies, great. Buy copies for all your team members you're going to be getting a free copy in the mail. Right after that, we go into a breakout. So a big part of this community practice is giving you space, <laughs> metaphorically and on your calendar, giving you the time to network and to build your social capital. So we want to make sure we do that. And then, of course, we always invite a member of the community to do sort of a mini case study. And we've got like crazy successful, great investment case coming from Penske. And then time permitting, we'll do 
another mini breakout session. Officially, this ends at 3.30 Eastern, but then we call it the after party. <laughs> Those of us who can hang around for a few more minutes, it can be to ask more questions of Laura about the case study, or we just chat about whatever's going on, sports, fun, vacations, whatever we feel like talking about. I'm going to have to cut it short today. I am in Nashville in a hotel and got to pack up and get to some other things. But that's what we've got cooking. And Dwayne, I do want to say before we dive into the next slide, you know, I shared with you privately, Dwayne, that the success of this community of practice, we're now pushing a thousand members. We now, you know, get over a hundred usually on a peak thing each month. It's been successful, but it's caused a couple of challenges. And because <laughs> of what we put into it and the books and everything else, the cost is kind of exceeded our planning and expectation. That was one challenge. I'm not, I'm very transparent about that. And the second is that we've been getting some feedback. When we launched the community, it was really supposed to be for heads of leadership development to have some peer discussions. And we welcome everyone, you know, that has some passion around leadership development. But some of the breakouts, you know, sometimes cause pairings that aren't super fruitful for everybody in the room. So, Dwayne, we haven't figured it all out yet, but we will be making, I'm letting everyone know, we will be making some changes to the program next year. Still lots of great stuff. I think at least, you know, eight of the months next year are going to be similar to this. Everybody's welcome. Still, you know, no cost. We might shorten them up into an hour. We might not always do the author segment. And then we might just take maybe four of the meetings next year, maybe once a quarter, where it's going to be for LeadX clients and you know special guests to do a little bit more of a facilitated peer-to-peer -to -peer topic discussion. So we're, uh, we'll have more details about this, but I wanted to plant that seed early that we're going to be shifting the format a little bit moving into next year. Hopefully, everyone understands that too. Hey, let's, uh, let's hit the next slide, Evan. This is a good chance for me to remind everyone that you know we launched the, the Culture Code podcast not too long ago. And man, we've been having some great conversations with chief people officers and heads of talent development and other people. This is just among the most recent batch. You can see here, October 6th, talk to the chief people officer at Twilio. We talked to Zapier, Omada Health, UiPath. Rivian, the really cool electric vehicle company. Not as cool as Tesla, Dwayne, don't worry. I'm not, uh, I'm not changing loyalties, but Rivian's really cool uh, as well. And that's, that just, that's just a batch. So if you like podcasts, go to the Spotify link or uh, that Evan has put in the chat notes or wherever you prefer to listen, subscribe. It's a great thing to do on the treadmill or doing that dashboard time. These are usually 20 to 30 minute conversations talking about driving great culture, engagement, what they're doing for leadership development. And um, if you're more of a, of a reader, you can find article versions of these conversations on the LeadX website and in Forbes. So I just want to remind everyone about that. And then one other note. So as many of you know, LeadX does an annual benchmark survey for leadership development. You know, we gather the budget data, the headcount data. So we're going to get ready to launch that again. And it's kind of like pay to play. If you want to find out what the average is, what people are doing, then you need to complete the survey to get that full report. And in fact, we're going to even ask for your help. And you'll see that in the first breakout today, that's going to be your, your breakout homework assignment is, what do you want to see in the benchmark survey? What questions do you want us to add? We kind of ran it from our side, but we want to hear from you. So we'll we'll show that in the first breakout. 
And then finally, we've got some news related to the vault, which uh, Evan will pull up here. So as many of you know, each month, we usually give a free resource. It could be a facilitator kit that you could use in your company. It could be a coaching guide, a coaching plan that you could give to all of your employees. And we thought we'd do something different. Here's what we're going to do. So LeadX is now an official certified partner with Blanchard, and we are certified to deliver the SL2 Situational Leadership Program. Now, many of you know, because we had a chat in one of the after parties about my reservations with SL2 have been twofold. One, I feel like it gets overly complicated, like we throw too many frameworks at people. Oh, you do the grow model, you do this model, and here's the SL2 model. So it's sort of complicated. And second, it's just how expensive it is. So we said, look, let's become certified providers. We can simplify it and add all of that great nudges and micro-coaching and resources afterwards so people can actually overcome that knowing-doing gap problem. And so what we're offering here, instead of a PDF resource, we're going to offer the actual SL2 workshop, and all of you can come for free. All of you can come for free. So any organization, you and one other guest from your company, if you want to participate, just say SL2 or I'm in or yes, give me the details. Now, we haven't picked the date yet, but this is, as you can see, this is going to be a virtual thing. It's the normal SL2 experience where there's going to be two two-hour sessions on day one, then day two and day three. We'll send you the details for the date and the times and then ask you to sign up officially. Like we don't want to hold it and then no one shows. So, but if you have, if you've aren't familiar with SL2 and want to go through or refresher, that'd be great. If there's someone on your team that you think could do a better job of situational coaching, invite them. If you want to send two of your managers to kind of audit it and get back to you about whether this is a program you should offer next year, that would be cool too. So just type, you know, I'm interested. We'll send you the details and give everyone some uh, a free workshop experience. How's that sound, Dwayne? You're always giving away free stuff. This is a beautiful thing, Kevin. Trying to, my friend, trying to. So that's good. Yeah, we'll see. And it's an experiment, right? <laughs> Not everything we, we try works. So we'll see how many people are interested in some free SL2 training. And then we'll decide what the free thing is going to be next month as well. Okay, Kevin. All right. After you actually hold the course, is there going to be nudges for the participants afterwards? Or is it kind of just concluded at that point? Wayne, that was a great question. And I'm going to pretend I thought about that ahead of time. And so <laughs> here's, here's the cool thing. Anyone who signs up for the SL2 workshop, we will give you the LeadX app so you can experience the whole thing. So oh, there's nice. the workshop. Then you'll get like 12 weeks of SL2 nudges. Each nudge nice. will go to a, a resource. So you'll get that whole pull-through experience and experience it just as you would, you know, that pay you know, if anyone else paid for it. So yeah, thanks. Dwayne. I forgot about that part. Look at you practicing <laughs> what you preach. I love it. <laughs> trying, trying. All right. I am, I am excited. Yes, I geek out about analytics. So we're going to move to the next segment. Our guest author, this is so cool. He was the founding member of the first people analytics teams at Merck, PetSmart, Google. Yes, I said Google and Children's Health Dallas before starting his own firm. His own firm is called People analyst. We're going to drop a link in here to his uh, his website. He is the author of People Analytics for Dummies. He's agreed to let me grill him on this stuff. 
without a whole lot of prep, please give a warm, warm welcome to Mike West. Mike, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Happy to talk about people and data anytime. Little bit nervous. You're a much better speaker than I am, Kevin. Uh, that's why I, I, it takes me a lot of time to get my thoughts clear and put them down on paper. But I really appreciate being invited to talk about my passion in this world. Mike, as you know, we have over 100 people live here and then another 900 that'll get the recording. Heads of leadership development, people who are shaping leadership development programs. And they're going to get your book, right? So this is sort of like a celebration of your work. And I'm going to tell everyone that what your book does great is it starts sort of simple, high level. And then by the time you get to the back chapters, there might be a little bit of statistics. And I think that's great. So it's like, depending on your interest and your comfort level, hey, this is like a guide that will let you do it yourself. And if you're like me and you're like, I'd rather not do that part, chapter 10 by myself, then you call up Mike and say, hey, Mike, how do we get this stuff done? But Mike, let me start with this. Take 30 seconds to brag. So you've worked in a lot of companies. You've stood up people analytics teams. Tell us where your work in analytics has actually shaped some positive business outcomes. Give me an example or two. Oh, sure. So one of the better examples that I have was at PetSmart. So, uh, you know, specialty retail organization. And what we were looking at is... What are the people measures that we could use to understand, predict, and potentially even control customer satisfaction and sales at a store store level? So when you think about it in, in HR, we have our underlying theories which drive our program development. And those are things like how we hire people, how we pay people, how we train people. And there's an assumption that goes into that that employees that have higher levels of engagement would produce higher level of customer satisfaction and sales. The principle is generally true, although you know that was something we really um, took apart, scrutinized, and were able to understand in a much deeper way for PetSmart. So, you know, we started with those general premise and we were looking at, we took our HR measures and our business measures and we put them together. As you imagine, you're taking those from different spreadsheets, bringing them together, and then you're doing a statistical analysis on how they relate. You need some controls and things because the performance of the store will also be related to what community it's in, economic conditions, and so on and so forth. But what we want to know, not all those things once the store's in place are relatively uncontrollable. I mean, you can shut down the store or open a new store, but what is the controllable people parts of that? And what we were able to tease out was that for, it, really, this will vary, by the way, just I can speak of this because for your company, it would likely be very different. There may be some parallels or maybe some businesses more that are more like PetSmart than others, but what's true for PetSmart may vary from another company. And that is in part the justification for analytics that what's true will vary contextually and you need data to confirm it as well as to see it as it changes. But for PetSmart, you know, their differentiator was what they know about pets and the passion their, their associates have around that. And we could show that if we took measures of what associates knew about particular pet topics in stores, we could correlate that to sales for those items, things like that. With that kind of appreciation and understanding, we knew that through testing, instead of taking our training dollars and spreading them evenly across stores, we could concentrate them in particular topics and places where we knew that would have, would have impact, put the dollars into that. It also justified that 
you know, relatively expensive program spend, which yeah. otherwise you're just sort of saying we want to do some HR stuff and business is saying they want to do some stuff and you're you're competing for those resources. It helped to refine that. There were other parts of that that were a little more complicated in the sense of how you look at the importance of a cashier relative to a service position. And, you know, we could tease those types of things out, which, you know, in part validated the way that PetSmart differentiates itself in the market. Probably don't have time to get into that in detail, but substantively, it's hard to quantify the impact of that in that, you know, many retail organizations, you see them filing for bankruptcy um, and really, really struggling, um, especially, you know, competing, you know, through, you know, essentially the last 10 years. And PetSmart is really counter to that, to that trend. They did quite well. They were bought by private equity for billions of dollars and are still doing quite well. And, you know, that information about how well they're doing isn't publicly available because they're now private. But um, I would just say, point to that outcome and say, this was one part of that. A lot of things have to go right. This is one part of that. Yeah. And Mike, in your book, that's a great example. And in your book, you talk about, you know, other cases where health systems used analytics to improve engagement of nurses, which they, you know, and reduce turnover of nurses. At LeadX, we've, you know, measured how leadership development affects everything from engagement to number of coaching conversations, et cetera. And yet you start early in your book, Mike, something that I see is in general, there's sort of a lack of interest among CEOs in people analytics. They're not, it's not, an, you know, they want numbers for marketing, for sales, for all these other things. And we beg our clients to do metrics. And very often they're saying, other than butts in seats and how many people we've pushed through training, we're not asked for metrics, so we're not going to do it. So why do you think there hasn't been more demand from, from higher ups? And how would we make the case for taking the time and a little bit of investment to stand up, you know, a people analytics effort. Mm-hmm. Well, first, I would say the places where we pioneered people analytics, in many ways, was driven from the fact that we had very intelligent leadership teams that were data driven by nature. So, Merck, just as an example, is a pharmaceutical company that not only has survived but thrived um, in making contributions to the world for over a hundred years through math and science. And you're not successful in that business if you don't have executives that understand those concepts and why they give you advantages. And much of what we built evolved out of just asking, well, you know, why can we do this for marketing and not for HR? We're spending billions of dollars in HR. We're making decisions that really are just repetitions of what other companies are doing or what we've done in the past or came from, if you've studied them, you know, maybe the military or some other organizational context. And we started to ask questions, just basic questions of how might we do this differently given the scale of investment we're making in these things. And that was compelling to those executives. I think on the basis of, and that's not just Merck, I use them as an example, PetSmart was similar, you know, somewhat unique, but retail can be very metrics driven, very smart when you know those leadership teams and how they operate. Google really had those same characteristics. They're building for the long-term, um, very sharp, you know, intelligent leadership team that wants to make decisions with data and really drove, wanted that from HR. So maybe those are counter to the common to the general public, the kind of yeah. general which you find. But so that's how you you get something new. But that's the technology adoption curve. Um, if you study crossing the chasm or kind of these ideas in marketing of how how technology um, spreads, 
it always follows that same path that the mainstream has a hard time. Why? Because it's counter to how they've always done things. It's not what they know. When you're under pressure, you revert to common patterns. So I think that's the problem many people have is just that, well, so I guess that's just to say, I think it's natural. I don't think it's inherent to people on a league self. Now, the second point I'd make is just to get across that they need examples and they need to start learning about it. And so, you know, there's different ways that can be achieved, but uh, my experience has been when people get a little bit of a taste of it, they always want, they want more. They just don't know they can ask for it. They don't yeah. know what it is. They didn't learn about it in business school. They don't know. But as soon as they see it, they'll start to ask questions and toy with it. They're very smart people. That's why they got to the top. I think it does executives a disservice to say, oh, they're not <laughs> going to understand this or they're too dumb. I don't think that's true. And 99% of the time, I don't think that's true. Yeah. So the book really was to try to bridge that gap. I mean, the problems really, uh, I thought about like, what are the problems I was trying to address? Well, we have a multi-layered topic that where each thing kind of builds on the next. That's a little bit complicated. This is totally new. We don't have a shared definition. It flies against maybe the established way of doing things to some extent. People don't believe in it until they see it. Um, It's like magic to them. How do you translate something that evolved from these very large technology companies to other settings? Mm. And like, how do you do all that? And then still share something practical, not just stay at the level of theory. The editors of, of Wiley are basically the editors of the book that work for Wiley really pushed me on that. I couldn't even follow the template of many of their previous analytic dummies books. Wasn't good enough. People wouldn't believe it. So we needed to really address all those problems. Now, Mike, you have a, a lot of great frameworks, a lot of very practical things here, give away a lot of information. One of your frameworks that you introduce is when you think about people analytics, so at a high level, you have the triple A framework, attract talent, activate talent, and then attrition of talent. So those are like the three big things. And so for leadership development, that really falls in the sort of part of activating the talent. Would you agree with that? I would say that's where it best overlaps, correct? and. If I were to draw, kind of just expand on that a little bit, I think, you know, the three A's are cute. It's just a way, it's a mnemonic or, you know, kind of way of remembering it. And it's it's fun because it's the the AAA model. You think of baseball and this is how do you, the problem I was trying to solve for was there are hundreds of possibilities in terms of where you could focus, but what's going to, how can we narrow, but at the same time, stay on the core ways that HR delivers really helps a business establish a differentiated advantage. Well, we do that in in these broad categories where we're either acquiring differentiated talent that gives us an advantage, or we're looking the other side of it. Over time, we're maintaining people in such a way that when we lose people, they're average or below average, and we're really um, retaining our highest performers at a higher rate. So over time, relative to any competitor, we're making, if you're playing a card game, I know that doesn't resonate with everyone, but it's like you're getting these redraws and you're you're accumulating advantages. So alternatively, you could say we're reducing our overall attrition rate below that of others and therefore maintaining more of our intellectual capital. But there's kind of two ways of looking at that attrition thing. Those can substantively, mathematically differentiate the performance of business. The middle problem that you're talking about leadership is extraordinarily important, I think kind of relevant to your group and the audience. And we know, like you know, there's hundreds of years of research around this, 
the issue that you have is in the variability of performance, either by individual or team. I took a focus of team and saying, Mm -hmm. look, if you have, there's a lot of people focusing on individual performance and the analytics of that. And I don't discredit that at all. Um, But I was looking at it and thinking in this context, um, there's very few roles where an individual can perform absent the support of others. And so how do we take this very complex dynamic and boil it down into something where we can infer, is it this, this, or this? That's not to say there aren't other things that could matter, but if we don't have the core underlying care, you know, conditions for success, the result would be failure no matter what else you put in. We could throw more if so. That really, when you think about it, leaders, people lead teams, and then people lead the leaders of teams. And what they need are feedback loops that can that aren't biased, that take a broader perspective, that get through layers that really don't have self-interest in sharing with them precisely what's going on or may not even know because of their own inherent lack of ability to see. So what we need are some feedback, create some feedback loops that would allow us to figure out how we prioritize our resources, whether that's by team or by topic. All right. So Mike, I'm going to ask you to, so let's <laughs> indulge me with a, with a little role play here. Well, I want, I'm going to encourage you to be really specific. So let's pretend yeah. I'm your CEO and you are a director of leadership development. And you probably don't get a lot of FaceTime with the CEO, depending on the size of the company. I don't know. Maybe we're sharing an elevator. And I say, hey, Mike, how's it going there, leadership development? You've got all this budget I'm sending you, $1,500 per year per leader. And you say, oh, it's great. You know, 100 people went through our leader development program, and we got 3.8 stars out of four stars. And we've got a high potential program, and 27 people graduated, even though we need five times more than that next year to replace the turnover. And I say, just say, listen, that's all activity metrics, Mike. Like, okay, but how do I know everything you're doing is having a positive impact on the budget? Go take six months and come back to me and show the impact leadership development has. Otherwise, next time there's a bad economy, you and your team and your budget are going to get cut. So now you're head of leadership development. Your CEO says, I don't want to see activity metrics. I want to see impact. Where would you start? Where would you try to show the business impact related to leadership development? You, <laughs> it's a dirty trick. You threw a hard, really difficult problem <laughs> at me at an analytical person who, you know, <laughs> wants to really take, take it apart and rebuild it. But so let me see if I can give you an answer that's specific enough, yet we can do it. I would say, you know, there may be two potential paths here. Um, one is very problem specific in that, you know, are there very specific business problems that we can relate leadership to that we could then measure it are the actions we're taking around leadership impacting those. That works better for some, you know, for some in, more in some environments than others. But, you know, like, so for example, we might see that, and I don't know this to be true, we'd have to, to go out and look at it, but at, at something where, like a PetSmart, where the outcomes at the stores are measurable and, um, and the people who are leading them are measurable as well, we could associate do the leadership characteristics that we're going for, like, well, does does attending the program or not attending the program, you know, on a, on a relative basis with controls contribute to success for the store units? Other types of, that'll fall apart for other types of businesses where maybe the measurements aren't as direct. So let's say there's another path, which is just, well, so for, I'll give you a couple of examples. 
Google did these long-term studies of what are the characteristics of managers and, you know, which is a certain level of leadership. There are other levels. And what is the impact of that on the, the success of teams? And we really, while there are many characteristics we could use to frame what a good manager is or isn't, and we can give people feedback on those, we want to be sure that we're actually getting whatever characteristics are there. We're, as a result, we're getting higher performing teams. So you're just putting in whatever measures of performance you have whether that's lines of code or you know what those teams are attached to the objectives those teams are attached to and your your leadership measures and you're you're teasing out okay these are the ones that are statistically significant these aren't or not and then you can use your own company data to sort of defend well when we train for these things this is why they matter like we we have proved this out you know again that's kind of hard and they have a large analytics team to approach that i'm not necessarily suggesting that for everyone another example i would have would be maybe similar to my first was we researched a little bit, does maybe a parallel idea, not about leadership per se, but um, at AstraZeneca, we were looking at our field sales representatives and whether or not if they attended, literally they were courses on how to read a sales report at whether that correlated at all to their, to sales in their, the areas their doctors that they supported. And believe it or not, it did. So even though they took time out of field to go learn how to read a sales report and they're just spending time with data, did that have an impact on their sales performance? It did. Well, they created feedback loops, you know, where they could effectively use information to better target how they spent their time and resources. So you could create little experiments like that, I guess, where you can associate. That's how I would approach it, I guess, broadly. Love it. I don't know if I missed anything in that, but, you know, you can really take, Research others have done like Google and say, if it's true there, it's probably true here. That may or may not work. You look for outcome measures you have and try to make these associations yourself or hire someone to do that. But you yeah. kind of generally principally what what question you're pitching to them. Yeah. And Mike, let me just so I mean, it's safe to say that what I like is you keep saying it's company specific. So yeah. in some companies here they, and well, we know from our benchmark survey, the number one issue people are, are struggling with right now is getting their managers to take more of a coach approach, do more actual coaching conversations. So you could actually sort of do an experiment. Does our training intervention and hopefully follow through increase the number of coaching conversations and do sort of a, a before and after or a control group? In other companies, they're really concerned about wellness, resilience. And you could say, hey, look, our resilience initiatives in this group, you know, dropped stress by 35% after 12 weeks. So, I mean, there are ways, but of course it's company contextual and you need to know what is the most important thing that we care about around here, right? Yeah. You talking about it actually really helped me. There's kind of three underlying principles. One, focus on the outcome you're looking to achieve rather than the metrics. I think people get a little confused and they want to just kind of someone smart to look at the data and Go about it the other way. Think about, so what does good look like if this program were successful? And that doesn't have to be, you know, sometimes the impact in the business is so many steps removed. It's not really a good way to go. You need something a little more immediate, but you probably can describe what you think that looks like. That might mean that people on the team have higher levels of engagement. That may mean that um, they would, but they're more likely to agree with the statement. You know, I have that that are around like psychological safety at work. They're more likely to agree with the statement. The team has the capabilities it needs, the support that it needs. They're more likely to agree with the statement. We're aligned around objectives. And while that's not 
then at that point, it's fairly obvious to say this is a good thing. And we're yeah. getting not only that, but we can show how those measures have changed over time. So we can justify that having people take time out to do these things is having an impact on some things we care about that we can universally agree are good, a good in state. Um, yeah. That's one principle is just think about those outcomes and how would you describe them? And then we can back out from that. What would people say? And then we're just trying to see, do they agree or disagree with those statements? Are we getting more? The other principle I would say is there's a big data approach, which requires a lot of resources, but there's a smaller data approach. An example I would share is at Jawbone is an example of a small technology company in which we wanted to implement a program where we simply, we were trying to influence the rate of employee exit, and we wanted to prove that applying a, a program where we would talk to people about what's their next move with the company, what timeframes would that occur in, and that sort of thing had an actual impact on exit rates. And we took a group of people and we did right. that and we didn't, and we could show a difference. So that doesn't require as much statistics or as much data. And you can do that with any program. Yeah. And I forget what the third was, but I'm probably burning <laughs> a lot of time, but, but like those two maybe as a good yeah. start. No, I appreciate that, Mike. And yeah, we're uh, unfortunately on a, on a short time here. Everyone, again, I saw some people just join. You will be getting you know a, a physical copy of People Analytics for Dummies. In addition to the things we talked about here, I strongly encourage everyone find the chapter around Mike's, what he called his CAMS survey. It's a survey. He gives you the questions, capability, alignment, motivation, support. It goes back to this thing that's become a recurring theme about quarterly sort of manager effectiveness. Those are my words, not Mike's words. He gives you this stuff you can use right in the book. And maybe Mike will do a special session so we can go deeper into the things. I know it's hard to deep dive on such a topic with just 10 minutes of time. But I want to thank you for the, the time and congratulations on the book. Oh, I appreciate the time and um, your tolerance for <laughs> for uh, how Great. I speak. I hope that it had impact on people. And, and definitely the writing in the book with editing just creates the space and much more clarity. So hopefully, um, for I'm glad that, that folks are getting a copy and I encourage people to scan through it and take a look. And certainly um, we can do more sessions or, or reach out to me with other questions. Yeah, both. Uh, feel, I encourage everyone to reach out to Mike. He's been really accessible on LinkedIn and from his, his website. And maybe after everyone you know uh, gets the book and, and spends some time with it. Mike, best to you and we'll be back in touch. Thank you so much, Kevin. I'm excited now to, we haven't spoken in a while, but she is the Vice President of Talent Development at Penske. You see their yellow trucks everywhere, I'm sure. Laura Heaton. Laura, welcome. Thanks for uh, joining us to share some of your approach from Penske. Hi, thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here with all these fabulous people. Let's start at the high level. So for those who don't know Penske or the details of Penske, so tell us like, you know, where's headquarters? How big's the company? How many leaders do you have? Yes. Yeah, so we have, uh, boy, so Penske is, there's all sorts of parts of Penske. So the yellow trucks is one part of our business. We have a transportation and logistics business. And we have about 50,000 employees. And wow. yeah, probably we have about a 140 VPs and 27 SVPs and about 5,000 supervisor to manager throughout the organization. So, yeah, and it is an industry where over the last couple of years, we've seen extraordinary growth. 
So I was trying to plug for that context question in, in your survey, because that has been a game changer for all that we're developing people for. And you and I talked when I interviewed you for this Forbes article, How Penske Paves the Way to Legendary Culture of Learning. And we'll drop the link if we didn't already do it. I, I'm not keeping an eye on the, the comments to that article as well. But so, Laura, I remember you telling me this is so I'm fascinated by leadership development at scale. And your scale is mind blowing. And I see many smaller companies, 1,000 employees, 2,000 employees, struggle to get their managers to complete any kind of training. And yet you told me 95% of your over 5,000 frontline leaders complete leadership development, 95%. And at the director level and higher, they reach 100%. So those results, those completion results, participation results have to have everyone really excited. So let's just start, like, what's the secret? How are you getting that, those kind of numbers across that many people? You know, it's interesting. There's that that saying that culture eats everything for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And there's something interesting in our culture. I've been at this game for decades, and I've never really seen a just a wholesale appreciation for development. And so it is fascinating. The other part of the secret, so that there's that, but it's also, we have a senior leadership team that is all in. Now we're privately held and our founder, Roger Penske, is still very, very involved in the business. We're one of five of his businesses. And so there's something about, Roger wants it to be hard for people to get into Penske and hard for them to ever want to leave. And so there's this sense that they're going to be here for a long time. Their children are going to be here. So we have many, many multiple generations within the organization. And so they're just taking care of each other element to our culture. And our senior leaders show up. They make the time for listening to the report outs at the end of the leadership classes, what people learned. And if it's a frontline leader program, they're there to kick it off and talk about how important it is. And they put their money and their time where their mouth is around this. And it's been the consistency of we really value it. We value our associates. We value a development. We care about career trajectories. But we want you to have all the careers you want right here. So I would say that is sort of unique. I know we've talked at other organizations and they don't understand how you get your senior leaders to spend an entire after to fly in from all over the country and spend an afternoon listening to people's action uh, learning report out. Well, Laura, Laura, I want to come back to because that kind of is like at the tail end, like the people fly in to hear these stories and things. Obviously, so this is great. Senior executive support and sort of this overall culture. I remember you said a couple other things that I think are big keys to this that people can steal. I'm always listening for things other people can steal. No offense, they're going to steal this from. And let, let me pause before I go further and remind everyone, feel free to hit questions, put questions in the chat or raise your hand. Evan's going to help me keep an eye on that so that we want to get your questions too. But Laura, you told me a couple of things. So one, automatic enrollment. Penske makes leadership development a requirement for the role, like it's part of the transition into the role. And 
I'm always shocked that, and I think we did ask, it was in the last benchmark, but I forget the numbers. The majority of organizations don't require that their managers <laughs> have leadership development or management training. I'm always like, what? You know, this is kind of crazy. So your organization falls on, look, you're automatically enrolled in this. That's So that's automatic opt-in. Mm-hmm. But then I've never heard of this. You told me that within the entire organization, there are quarterly development reviews. And when you first said that, I thought like, oh, it's kind of like quarterly performance reviews. Like you're always talking and you're like, no, no, no. Every quarter is a development conversation. Can you describe that for us? Yeah. So two things. So in the leadership development, more of the program side, the automatic enrollment is a big piece of, we understand the impact leadership, the quality of leadership has on the culture. So there's a, there's a very intentional systemic element to that. So then another one of the practices within talent management is the, the talent review and succession planning program where you, you're managing the continuity of leadership in, in the enterprise. And so we have field and corporate elements to that. And we have these quarterly talent reviews. So all the folks that are on the radar so to speak, for either in a pool job potential or they're on track for a specific type of role that we have. And it's led by executive uh, vice president and then all the senior VPs. And quarterly will be everyone will report out region by region. These are the people. All right. These were the development who had the conversation with them. What, and so every quarter it just moved along so here are the people we're talking about here's what we think the experiences they need all right who's going to go do that and then the next time around how is that going had the conversations oh yes they are interested in that oh no they want to be in something else they're relocatable they're not relocatable and so they're constantly working with it and then people who are on the radar there, they know that they're on the radar and they're having these career conversations and they have the development support that they need and they're first top of mind if there's a strategic initiative that we want to give them more exposure to high profile and high stakes assignments and so forth. So that just moves along and every quarter there's a a slightly different focus. And not everybody develops completely within a year, but at least we have a way of moving it along. So there's accountability, there's some peer dynamic in that. And it's taken, candidly, it's taken a few years to get really pretty good. We have ways to go still, but pretty good at identifying what a development need is. So for Mm -hmm. example, you know, elite managers, God love them, they're not... (laughs) always the best at identifying what the actual development need is. And so here, if somebody says, oh, they need executive presence or they need strategic thinking. When you say that, what do you really mean? And as you peel it back, you know, the executive presence could be confidence. It could be presentation skills. It could be they don't, they don't know how to work a room. It could be like, it could be all these different things. And so little, the more you spend time deconstructing what those needs are, in those plenary sessions with the develop, then all the managers start over time to get better at identifying the actual development need that then when supported can result in the behavior change. I don't know, imagine there are a number of us on this call today that have poured blood, sweat, and tears into development programs. And 
sometimes you don't get to see the development actually take root on the other end. And it, it can be a little deflating. And so getting that development need accurately identified is a game changer. And then having the systemic support around that to be in that conversation with the expertise and people who now are caring about this makes all the difference. Yeah, Laura, I think this is, um, I'm starting to pick up on hearing this from not just Penske, but other organizations about just how critical career conversations and the career pathing is to this culture of learning and development, which then gets you the participation rates and the support and everything else. I mean, I love talking about culture. <laughs> Our podcast is called Culture Code, um, mm. but culture can feel squishy. So I'm always like, well, what's the practice? What's the behaviors? And we had heard uh, not too long ago from Allison Pearson, who's here about the, their career conversation training program they rolled out. I just came back a couple of weeks ago from Adobe in San Jose, and they very similar actually, Laura, where they're like, okay, it's Q1, where everyone's going to talk about goals and expectations. You know, every manager is going to have these goal conversations. Q2, we're going to talk about, you know, the next step in that path. And so to say, look, we're not just going to talk about it or encourage people to do it or do it one time and be done. Here is the quarterly cadence. And then if everyone's talking about development, everyone's talking about career, you know, expectations. And I like the, you know, automatic enrollment. I think that development piece will come into play. So, you know, not everyone in this community of practice can just have the authority to do this. But, you know, if you're a director of leadership development in a big company, you could be having this conversation with your talent management, CHRO, you know, counterparts. If you are a CHRO or chief people officer in a mid-market company, you could really push this as a new initiative for uh, next year, these quarterly conversations. So much good will come from it. The other thing I remember, Laura, is you talked a lot about, this was a new idea to me, you said, eh, you know, horizontal development will only go so far. We do vertical development. Tell us what you mean by that. Yes. So the horizontal is what we call, you know, more knowledge, more skills. You're just acquiring more of. The vertical is changing the capacity with changing how you know something along cognitive, emotional, behavioral lines. And so it's very, very deep development theory that we're looking at. And so we challenge the perspectives people are taking. And I know there's there are probably a number of people on this call that are familiar with this, but it's basically looking at that it's a stage model that's based on complexity and so I know with the, the VUCA world that we're dealing with right now, a lot of leaders are kind of what Keegan would say, over their heads because the environment is asking from people something that is more complex than the capacity with which they're coming to that. And so it's a process, a deeply reflective process, but also one that doesn't just look at how do I process things more complexly but also emotionally, because that's where a lot of the developmental tethers are. And so we go rather boldly into some of the emotional development experiences for people as well and get them to go from, and not that we have like a target, while we do have a very clear architecture based on the, the general complexity of roles throughout the organization and what level of 
uh, sense-making complexity would be needed to meet this environment at that level of complexity. And while we don't, it's not our objective to turn everyone into Yoda, we do want people to be able to meet that environment and the task and context complexity without it causing a ton of cortisol swirling through their brains and uh, just miserable stress, which a lot of people feel. So some of those stages go from like black and white thinking, uh, yes, no, us, them, which there's too much of that in the world today, but I'll leave that alone, and to more and and inclusive and integrative and genuinely coming from a position where you're curious about other perspectives and you become less defended in having to be right or having to hold on to a, a certain perspective or be the expert in the room. Now, Laura, I am going to follow up on that because I am a simple person with a simple brain. So I'm going to have you break it down for me even further. But before I do, I just want to remind everyone, and I can't see all the comments. So if you have questions, feel free to put them in the chat or raise your hand. Evan's going to keep an eye on it. And we're going to open it up for those questions and for other people yeah. to chat with Laura. Kevin, we have Kevin, a you couple got something? in the chat here. Okay. Genevieve, would you like to come on and ask your question or, or I can read it here for you? Sure. I'd love to. I work at Michelin. Okay. I'm sorry. I'll come off the camera too. Yeah. So a couple of questions. You know, we have a challenge between teaching leadership skills and I would say behavioral skills, because as a leader, you want people to be authentic and genuine and you want them to bring their full self, which is not what looks like everybody else. But behaviorally, there are expectations that we need to set and kind of what is that guideline? And so how do you manage the development? Is it linear? Is it, you know, everybody does this, 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 and this, or is it customized? Because I think what we're finding is it needs to be more customized based on the development needs of the person from both a personal and a professional, and you could call it skill set, capabilities, competencies, and behavioral perspective. Yeah, they don't want much, do they? Yeah. No, just it, all it, of it. <laughs> just all of the above. Yes. Where's my magic wand? But no, it's a great question. And it is a bit all of the above. So the programs that we have, I'll just pick on our mid-level leader programs. They're 14-month-long programs. And throughout that length of time, so there are four in-person or now two of them are hybrid, but learning events throughout that year. But what we also have is we have coaches. We have ICF coaches internally that are paired with people throughout their year-long experience. So we have the continuity of somebody debriefing and the coaches are, are woven into the design of the program so that they know in this section where we're dealing with maybe there's certain self-awareness things. And then in this section, we're dealing with maybe it's a delegation or maybe it's you know, that's first level leader. We're dealing with, so whatever they're the, content of the programs dealing with, they understand where they're supposed to be. And then they're having their confidential conversations along the way. They're also their, you know, 2 a.m. phone a friend kind of support. The other thing that we do is then we get the feedback aggregated, you know, obviously, you know, scrub, but aggregated. And what are some of the thematic issues people are dealing with? And then that's brought back to the, the program manager who makes designs in, okay, maybe we need another little section on this because 
the organizations dealing with something they haven't dealt with before and it's landing on these people in a, a certain way. We also look at leadership development. We actually refer to it as developing people in a leadership position. And so mm. we take a very deeply human approach to that. And we are very, very intentional about setting a context the very first night. It's, it's kind of a surprise attack in a way that gets everyone really bonded, having really deep conversations very quickly. And so we have some techniques that we do to do that, but there's a lot. So there's the the deep human development, which I think is part of the root of your question around how do you get those behavior change? Because until they have that transformational experience, like, whoa, that I don't see things that way anymore. And it's not just coming to it from your head, because we can all pick that up pretty quickly. It's when you've embodied that. It's like, oh, that fits me. And then I try that out and I see the results and then it becomes more generative. And it becomes more the norm. And the people who don't act in the, the more humanistic way, they are the ones that stand out anymore, not so much in a positive way. A great question. Yeah, thanks, Genevieve. We have um, one more from the audience. Ash, do you want to come on and ask your question? Yes, thank you. Laura, my question was really, how many programs do you offer as part of this ecosystem of programs and how do they really vary from one another? Oh, yeah. So Mike was supposed to handle all the math. So we have this stratified approach and the way our group is organized, we split the training into different things. So we might have 53 different training programs going on that are aligned to business functions. So think just like you're onboarding to being a load planner, or you're onboarding to being a warehouse person, or you're uh, working on a rental counter, or you're a lease salesperson, or whatever your role is, it's specific skill-based relative to a function. So we may have 53 of those going on at any given time. Then we have uh, the taking the lead, which is our a fundamental, you're coming into leadership. and if you don't make some of those transitions at that point, like the delegation and the self-awareness and emotional intelligence, then you're doing very expensive plans for, I know I'm preaching to the choir, for very senior people down the road because they have to get that. And so we have the taking the lead for all people and that's cross-functional. Then we have the leading leaders level of programs and we have one that specifically for maintenance leaders. We have one that's specifically for finance leaders. We have one that's uh, specifically for the our district managers who are kind of the CEOs of geography or PMs in a way. We have them in the logistics side. We have general manager training at that level. So there's at least a half a dozen of those year-long programs. And now we're in development for another one that's more of a an all-star that it's not for a, a bespoke line of the business, but now it's for that. And then we have an officer level program that we do. And we do that in conjunction with Wharton. We also have another one that we do at the senior most level at Harvard. That's a lot more business skills. That said, once we get to the VP level and above, those are ones that are all very custom 
to the person. So it's all over the board. And then, of course, there's all the e-learning that we build out for people to do on their own. Oh, uh, Fox Carlisle uh, Transportation. How many people on your L&D team? It's a big team. I have 71. <laughs> and it's expanding. I think you were pushing 70 the last time we spoke. I started eight years ago with 13, and now I have 71. Wow. Laura, I'm going to reveal my own sort of ignorance and biases because like, I'm stunned. I'm sure people are stunned with the amount of resources human and financial you have, the number of programs, the length of the programs, 14 months to go to a program, the fact that they're required. You have internal coaches. Like, Everything everyone could want, like you've got this in place and your Penske, like if someone said, okay, which company is this? I'd say Google or Facebook, like some California, you know, holistic, a little bit soft, you know, tons of money. I wouldn't think some Pennsylvania transportation, right? But I'm totally wrong. And so when you joined or in your time, like has it evolved or did it surprise you the level of support for this very advanced approach? Yes. So it wasn't like that when I started, but you know, sometimes I would just rather be lucky than good. And I lucked into some things. So here's our operational leaders, our big operational leaders are 100% homegrown. And we had come to a point where the growth had been organic, but it had been at a very manageable pace. And then all of a sudden, it started growing faster than the organic nature of people marinating in roles and then learning. And then, you know, you'd be in a role for five or six years before you get the next promotion. So what happened was we had very senior operation, like field level operation roles, where the tenure in the role was sinking because of having Mm. to fill that need. At the same time, the complexity of the role was increasing. And so the decision was made at the top of the house that, oh, we need a development program to grow, you know, these key leaders. So that's when we just designed it the way we wanted it to be. And it was sold and we lucked out and it was a home run and they wanted more of it. And then this department wanted a version of that and another department wanted a version of that. And the stories. I know we had a, a lovely conversation in our breakout around the analytics and how do you show like the ROI to make that happen. And, yeah. and I've said quite publicly, it's about the narrative, you know, mm. because if people, do, if the story doesn't match the numbers, people are going to believe the story. And when people, and you have, you know, senior leaders that come in and support and see the impact that some of the folks can tell the story of how they've changed as human beings as a result of it. I would say that's how it gets funded because they see the human impact and they see, so we have our own little way of measuring the success of a program. We call it the three buckets. And at the end of the year long program, one of the last things people do is they tell a story of their learning uh, journey, their learning experience. And we, we kind of sit in the back and we identify which bucket we would put that story into. And the first bucket is for people who tell a story of what they learned in the program. And then the next bucket, bucket two, is people who tell a story about this is what I learned, this is how I applied it, and these are the results I got, which is, you know, we think, wow, that's level four, this is great, let's capture that. So we go for the third bucket, and that is when people tell a story 
about how they fundamentally see the world and themselves differently. Because of that, this is what they've done. This is what it means to them. And the, this is the result it has. And the result is always bigger than their job. And yeah. so when you hear that, and they often get pretty choked up telling that story. And it's really hard to not be choked up when you're listening to those stories. And that's some of the, the secret sauce, I think, that has kept this machine going and growing. Laura, I hope you don't disappear, but we're at time. So I just wanted to officially wrap some things up. What I love that you say there is I always say in sales, people sort of buy or invest for emotional reasons, but they justify it with logical reasons. So those stories are the real secret sauce. We're at time, and I know some of you have to jump to, many of you probably have to jump to meetings because this was already over by a few minutes. Want to thank our guest author, want to thank Laura, who might be able to stay for a few more minutes. Dwayne, big thanks for uh, having my back and helping me out here today. And look forward to seeing everyone next month. Thanks for the contributions. Thanks for investing in your careers. And we're officially in the after party where if anybody can stick around, Laura, I don't know if you can stick around for a few more minutes. We can keep talking about this topic and then anything else. But I know a lot of you have to jump. So thank you very much for sharing and coming in here. Good to see you, Leslie. Just saw you there. That's great. That's great. So Laura, yeah, I, let me just, as people are either getting ready to come on camera to, to talk more, I'm glad you went back to that story because I remembered that from our Forbes conversation too, is that this has become like a thing where after the end of this long program, everybody knows there's going to be some transformation stories. So people will fly in for it. And um, that's got to make everyone feel so special as well, that there's that kind of support on the program. Yeah. You know what? One of the fascinating things too is seeing the transformation in the types of questions that executives will ask and engage with people on related to development. And that's been beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Poetry to me. Yeah. It's why we do it. Dwayne, any thoughts from uh, Laura's incredible success at Penske? I mean, outside of just wanting a couple million and three headcounts from her. (laughs) (laughs) Is that all? Is that all? (laughs) Yeah. That's just, Five people, that's it. No. So when you take a look at the work that you're doing, what's some of the information that you've gleaned on the back end that, Mm. you know, from, I know we've been talking about the data, right? And how do we know that at the end of these programs, we're truly seeing impact from a revenue standpoint or from whatever that is, what are some of the numbers and what's some of the information that you're gathering to show that this is really hitting the bottom line? So great question. So one of the things that we do in developing the program We structure the programs according to like the fundamental thing that needs to be learned in the organization. But a lot of times the business isn't clear about that. So so we don't go until we know. And uh, these programs were such that, so for example, we were doing our maintenance. They had 700 reports that they measure. I mean, you want to talk about analytics. It is analytics on steroids. The equipment's almost sentient. It's so complex nowadays. However, that's too much for a mortal human being to manage. And there's a difference between leading and lagging indicators and what, where should they be spending their effort and their energy? So we have to work with the business. And if the politics are stuff, stuff that we need outside support to build like a business simulation or whatever, then we we contract with that. But we get it down and we have now three drivers of maintenance excellence. We have drivers of profitability. 
but it took probably six months of OD consulting, working with the business to net it out. And the process of that gets everybody aligned. Like it's a mm-hmm. kind of a classic OD thing. And once you're clear about that, everything else starts to pop. And then you know what you're developing is higher impact. Because if you sure. go with what, you know, and just try to make sense of it otherwise, it's not fair to those poor human beings that are actually trying to go out there and run those complex operations. Yeah. I like that. You, hey. you, we don't go until we know, you said. That resonates. <laughs> and, you, and you're right. Sometimes we have to push back on the business because they lag and sometimes they don't know, but it, they expect us to make uh, the decisions with limited information. So I do like that drawing the line in the sand. I like that. Thank mm-hmm. you. And um, again, remind anyone, especially with the smaller audience here now, just um, raise your digital hand and you can come on camera. Evan will, Evan will notice or uh, type your questions in. But um, Laura, I'm curious. I mean, again, we're like all amazed at the resources, the success you're having. And I'm curious here. So what's your focus for next year? I'm sure it's do everything well that we've been doing well. And what follows and mm, for 2024? Yeah. So right now... I want to stabilize a lot of this and I want to get some pure standards around things like facilitator guides. So we have metabolized mm. a number of new people and everybody, you know, we hire them because they're fabulous and they're brilliant and they have all this experience yet. Well, this is how we did it there and this is how we did it there. And so how do we extract and metabolize the best of what everybody has and yet have some level of dependable professional practice that we have so that we can support each other so that the the folks on the team can be a little more fungible, if you will. And then we don't end up having multiple different versions of something if it is not really accretive. Yeah, that makes sense. Genevieve, I know you have your hand up. You want to come on camera? Yeah. Yeah. Quick question. But given that you've got so many different line leaders, line managers, do you measure managerial quality? And I would say leadership, you know, obviously the leadership path and effectiveness, but do you measure it and how? Yeah, it's usually measured through conversation and it has changed over the years. As you can imagine, well, you know, the industry there are a lot of folks there that have never had any soft skills training. First of all, can I just tell you, I am allergic to that term, soft skills. <laughs> Whoever coined it, boy, it's because it's the hardest thing anyone ever worked on. But power they, skills, Laura, they're power yeah, skills. Power skills, there you go, there you go. Superpower skills, yes. <laughs> but it has become, that's where the culture starts to carry some water for you because then they start to stand out. And so we've also recently, over the last probably year, significantly invested in HR business partners out in the field and corporate. And so there's more support to be in conversations with people around that. The other thing that we have is we're when we're looking and evaluating talent, how are they developing talent? How do we know? And so that is a question that needs to be answered. If somebody has no successor and like, wait a minute, they've been in that role for all these years. Why is there no successor? And you dig into there and there's a little more micromanaging and then they've got their own stuff going on. And so you just pick those off one at a time as you can. But yeah, are they a developer of talent? 
is a key piece of that. Are they other focused and not holding all that for themselves? Great. Evan, do we have other questions, uh, things that I've missed? I'm looking through. Laura, I will say, and then we're going to we'll wrap this up with this question because unfortunately I'm in a hotel room and I got to get out of here. But I think this was officially the most people we've had at an after party ever. Oh. And we had a we had a drop off after the first, you know, we went into that, that first breakout. And so like by percentage, this is crazy. Like I think everyone was blown away by what you were saying and are like soaking up your words. So it's a mental note for me. Like we should figure out how to pick apart other pieces of your program and write more about it and share it. Cause you seem very willing and I know it's helped a lot of people. Yes. No, we're all in this together. We all uh, kindred spirits in this work. Yeah. Yeah. What do you got Ev? All right. So the last question was, how do you deal with leaders who don't participate? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that the culture is carrying some water for us now. If they don't participate, they can't do it and not be noticed. They can't do it unnoticed, if that makes sense. And it's like a cultural norm anymore. And you'd want to know why I'd want if somebody refused to participate. My first thing that I'd be really curious about is why they might not feel safe. You know, some people development, they come to this stuff. They don't want to be wrong. Maybe who knows? I don't make up, but there's maybe they don't value it because they know what all they need to know. There's a thousand different reasons they might, but I'd want to have, I'd want to suss that out. Laura, you're such a better human than me because if someone, if this is a mandated program, they're not participating. I'm thinking like, get with the program or you're out the door and you're like, oh, I want to find out why they're not saved, why they're not encouraged. Like, you're just so much nicer than I am. Hey, I've learned this. I've learned this the hard way. And I, so this was a vertical development moment for us. We had a program. We, yeah, all right. So here's peeling back the curtain. We hit it out of the park with the DM program. Life-changing, la-da-da-da-da. We thought we knew what we were doing. This is great. Then we did a similar program for our logistics business. And horrible behavior. People with their laptop in the class, people walking in and out of the class, taking calls, or, or, or like, what is what universe am I in? This does not happen in this company. Right. And at one time, one of my colleagues went up to, and these are junior people, and went up to this one person and said, would you please mind closing your laptop? And he turned his back. <laughs> oh my gosh. So we've seen some really nasty behavior. Yeah. And so we were like, this program isn't going to work with these folks. And we, we <laughs> talked to the senior folks in the logistics group and like, we were all like, well, take their phones. We're going to not let them do this. <laughs> and, so forth. and so we happened to be at a vertical session in England with David Rook. And he said, he listened, he's like Yoda. And he said, huh, it sounds like they don't feel safe. And we thought, oh my gosh, and my heart hurt. Like, huh? <laughs> and then, then I realized they work in a very different environment. They're, yeah. in, they're nested in different customers and they're, some of those customer sites are not like our culture. It's complicated. Yeah. And so we hadn't honored them. We were a little too full of ourselves in understanding that. And so we took that to heart. And then the next session where we got back together, we had an open dialogue with the team. And 
anyone who was in the back of the room. So one of the things, you know, we're making notes at the back of the room. There are other people on our team that were like in admin roles that were taking notes. And they're like, who's in this room? Why are they, what are they taking notes or telling on us? And like all this sort of stuff. We're like, oh, you know, we were thinking where is this landing? No, we need to, you know, so we're making those kinds of notes, but they felt like, you know, they're being evaluated. They were resistance against all of that, but we contracted with them and then, all right, so we'll have 10 minutes every hour for you to handle calls because we understand this. And then it was all discussable and it was honored and we kind of contracted with the team and then we were off. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Culture Code Podcast. Are you looking to build, refine, or revamp a training program? We team up with companies like Northwestern Mutual, Cineos Health, and Duck Creek Technologies to roll out highly engaging training series for emerging leaders, new managers, women in leadership, high potential managers, sales enablement, and more. Check it out at leadx.org. What makes these series so uniquely engaging? We help you build a full system of development that leverages our cutting-edge platform and world-class training. We blend together world-class cohort-based virtual training and group coaching, personalized nudges, micro-learning, and on-demand office-hour-style coaching. Go check it out at leadx.org. Thank you.